Amen. Join me then, and we will return to Matthew 26 to this sacred text. And that can be said, certainly, of all of the Scripture. But I think as we even read, you feel something of the gravity of this text as our Lord walks into the garden and prays with His Father. Sometimes a simple word or even a letter can make all the difference, communicates very different things. And that's especially true as we think about God, as we think about theology, as we think about, too, our life before God, what it all means and how we relate to Him. For the early church, it literally came down to, at one time, one iota, literally that one Greek letter, made all the difference between Jesus being very similar to God, homo eusius, versus being God himself, the very substance of God, of the same substance, homo utios. See, between adding in a little iota, you have heresy on the one hand and you have biblical orthodoxy on the other. And the Council of Nicaea in 325, they got it right. Jesus is fully God of the very same substance as God, homo usios. Another key word in church history that has clarified the gospel and yet also divided true from false churches is that word alone. The very word alone. It was the sola of the Reformation that made all the difference. For you understand, the Catholic faith truly affirmed that Scripture was important, that faith was needed, that grace is required, that Christ must save, and so God should get glory. But everything changes when you add alone to each one of those tenets, that the Scripture alone is our guide in life, faith, and practice, that faith alone saves, that salvation is by grace alone, and that we cannot save ourselves, so we must be saved by Christ alone. And not only this gospel, then only this gospel results in the glory of God to be alone. That alone stands as the difference between heresy, self-righteousness, and a hopeless false gospel from the true gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we see that truth, that the gospel, where we can rest ourselves and find a refuge because it is alone in Jesus Christ. And that way you understand alone is not just a nice word for our theological formulations. It is biblically necessary, and it's necessary for our souls, for salvation is found, refuge is found in Christ alone. And we'll see this this morning because He did it alone. He had no helpers, and He needs none of your help this morning to save your soul. And dare we not try and help Him and so insult His work that He has done. As we look at our Christ, as He comes up to His death, We are going to see reason to find rest in a Savior, a Savior who needs nothing of your help to save you from your sins. And dare we not try, but may we fully trust and resolve to rest in Him and that alone. So as we turn to our text, we're going to see seven sides of the sufficiency of Christ. We're going to look at seven things that point us back to Jesus, about how He's sufficient, why salvation's in Him alone, why we should trust Him, always looking away from ourselves. And the first is this, is actually, as we do look at ourselves, is that we first must see our spiritual weakness, verses 31 through 32. The first two sites of the seven that we will see at the Mount of Olives here, as He's making His way to the cross, we look at ourselves, we look within. And what we do when we see there 
As we have all reason to transfer faith, to transfer trust, to transfer dependence away from us, because we are weak, we are crumbling, we are a broken foundation, and we have all the reason to trust Christ, because we are not trustworthy. We are not faithful. We could never save ourselves. We are spiritually weak. See your spiritual weakness, so then you can turn your eyes solely back on Jesus. Now, Let's reset the stage a bit where we've been. Recall that we had just heard our master institute the Lord's Supper. He took that celebratory meal of Israel's Passover and about her redemption. And he says, no, no, this now points to a greater redemption that I'm going to accomplish now. This bread and this cup, they point to my body as a gift for you. They point to my blood being spilt for you. And this gift, understand, he says, it's coming in the morning. So they concluded the meal, verse 30 now. And as the Passover was often done, they sang a song or a hymn. And they went up the hill to the Mount of Olives. Now, when you see Mount, thinking mountain, don't think the Grand Tetons or Kilimanjaro. This is like a big hill, really. Hill tall enough, though, that when you're standing on it on the western side, you're looking right over the temple, right over the temple precincts. You see all the happenings basically in the center of Jerusalem. And this hill on the west side housed many trees, especially olive trees, forming clusters and groves all over its side. And apparently one such grove uh, was Jesus' favorite. It had the name Gethsemane. He frequented there. And he was there enough that even, we know from John's gospel, Judas suspected Jesus to be there. He knew right where this place was. This was a a haunt of his, if we could put it that way, of Christ. But before his betrayal by Judas, before they ever even get to the grove itself, his sanctuary there, on their way, he has something relatively discouraging to tell the disciples. So let's pick it up then. This is our text, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So guys, I got some bad news tonight. You're all going to fall away. All of you. Every one of you. And it's not going to happen in a while. It's going to happen tonight. You're going to be tempted to turn your back on God, to turn your back on me and run away. And it's happening tonight. Surely the disciples hearing this were shocked. I think shook to the core because they're incredulous about this. They're going to rebut in just a moment. Because again, it's one thing to say when they were at dinner just a few hours before, right? It's one thing to say, one of you will betray me. It's a whole nother thing to say, no, all of you will desert me. They think to themselves, no way, this can't happen. That's not us, Jesus. We love you. We're for you. And yet Jesus knows their hearts better than they do. And more significantly, Jesus knows the scripture and the plan of God, and he trusts God better than they do. Because note how Jesus defends his prediction. He says, you're all going to fall away tonight, middle of verse 31, for it is written. He's going back to Old Testament prophecy. We go back to the beginning, what God has said. And what did he say in in Zechariah? I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Guys, I understand your objection, but listen, it's written. 
It's settled. God has said it. That settles it. I'm going to be struck down, and you are all going to run. You're going to stumble in your faith. You're going to be scattered all over. Now, as discouraging as that might be to hear that night, I mean, it certainly did not boost any of their self-esteem, I think. There's hope in those words. For remember, Jesus is quoting prophecy here. He's tapping into the designed, foreordained plan of God about what's going to happen tonight. For this comes from Zechariah 13, this quote where, yes, the shepherd's going to be struck, and yes, the sheep will be scattered, lost. They'll even be disciplined for a time. But after they've been scattered, there's hope in Zechariah because he's going to then bring him back. This is Zechariah 13, verse 9, just a couple of verses later. They will call upon my name then, and I will answer them, God says. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. See, even they're falling away. That is just one step in God's glorious plan to bring his people back to himself. Though it will be so hard for them to see that in the middle of this storm. And as more proof of this, that Jesus is seeing things right, he understands what's going on. Look what he tells them next in verse 32. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Two pieces here. You see, Jesus, he knows he's going to be resurrected. It's not about, well, if I get raised up. No, after I raised from the dead, he's been telling them repeatedly, They have yet to seemingly really hear it. No, I will die, yes, but that's not the end of the story. My death is not the last word. I'm rising from this death. But then notice, he's rising from the dead to do what? I will go before you to Galilee. That is, I will go there to meet you there. And understand, he's not saying that because then I'll really get after you. He's saying, I want to rise from the dead to go be with you. I'm resurrecting for you. I want to go be with you. I want to go meet my beloved. Yes, you are weak. Yes, you are sometimes failing friends. Yes, but I want to rise from the dead to meet you back in Galilee. Again, what a grace of the Savior. They might abandon him, and he knows they will, but he's not abandoning them. Know this then. Our Savior knows how weak you are. He knows all of your failures. And get this, He knows all the failures you have yet to fail in yet. And that did not deter Him from coming to redeem you. That did not deter Him from calling you to Himself, saying, I will show mercy to that sinner. Rather, all the more, His love is set on you. He still loves you. He still came for you. And not because your faith was so good or you were so strong or you had such potential. He came for you because you needed Him. And he loved you, and that's it. We do well to see our spiritual weakness, because then we see a love that far surpasses it. We can find rest in our sufficient Savior second because we can see our spiritual pride, or if we would. Verses 33 through 35. To really come to grips with our spiritual need and weakness, we have to come to grips with our pride, our our spiritual presumption that tries to hide our need for Jesus. We don't really see we need him because we think we're pretty okay. And the call is here. No, you need to see your spiritual pride because like us, these disciples, they were full of it. That is full of themselves. Such that as led by Peter, they wish to argue about Jesus, about this prediction of their desertion. Verse 33, Peter answered him, 
Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Note that. Peter uses the very same words that Jesus did in his prediction. Almost word for word. Jesus, you said all will fall away. Peter says, no, I won't. It's a direct contradiction. He's contradicting the Lord of glory. Never mind that Jesus is God and what he says goes. And never mind that Zechariah prophesied such a falling away must happen. Never mind all that. I will never, Peter says. It's so emphatic in the original. Why? Because what does Peter think? He's the exception. He's the exception. You ever thought about that about yourself? Giving yourself the benefit of the doubt that really nobody else should get? Because God really knows my heart. He does way better than you do. Even if all abandon you, I will not, I will never turn my back on God. Now, as I read that, of course, we see how gloriously or probably ingloriously we would say Peter fails as to come. But I'm partially divided how to take Peter here. Namely because, I mean, what's Peter supposed to say? I mean, it would be horrible, wouldn't it, if Jesus said, you're all going to fall away, and Peter's like, yeah, I know, I wasn't really that committed to you anyway. Just kind of in when it was nice. No, he's committed. He loves his Lord. And yet he's weak, isn't he? He's not as strong spiritually as he thinks he is. And this is what Jesus will expose next in him and so often in us. And it's his presumption, his spiritual presumption. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What a reversal from what you said, Peter. You will deny me. And not only will you deny me, you will do so tonight before the rooster crows, before daybreak. And not only will you deny me, but you'll do it three times. Complete betrayal. And instead of being humbled by this, Peter denies it again, and he ups the ante. He's a bold dude, isn't he? Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. There is no stronger way to say it in the Greek language anyway. I will not, I will no, never, ever deny you. Can't happen. Even if I must die, I'd rather die than be found betraying and turning my back on you. Again, it's all the right words of total devotion. The only difference is Jesus actually knows. He has insight into the heart. He knows the fear of the heart saying all these things. He knows the weakness of the heart saying it all. And the trouble is, it's pride not to see that yourself. Now, to be clear, though Peter is, we're picking on Peter He's at the center of all of this because he's the boldest. But verse 35 finishes it off by telling us that all the disciples said similar things like this. You know, perhaps like soldiers or like athletes trying to psych themselves up for the big game or that great battle or moment. The disciples seemingly, or they're trying to maybe convince themselves that they're not going to fall away, that maybe if they say it loud enough and strong enough, maybe it's going to happen. But Jesus knows their hearts. And again, we've returned to say, well, he knows ours too. He knows our frame. He knows we are weak. And it is only our arrogance that keeps us from seeing that. And so all the time. That's the danger of our pride. It blinds us. It blinds us to our weakness. Our pride blinds us to our need. 
We think we can do it. We think we can handle it. We think we got this. No, this sin is not such a big deal. I think I can overcome this on my own. I think I can contribute something. I think I can alleviate the guilt if I do X, Y, and Z. I don't really need to take heed. And then what happens? We fall. And sometimes we fall hard. And yet, what do we find as we look to the Savior? And yet, even though all will turn on Him, all will abandon Him despite all of their greatest intentions, He will never turn on them. He came to save such weak, stumbling, failing sinners. But those sinners must see their need for Him. They must humble themselves. So how about you? Do you know the weakness of your own heart? Do you see that you are a cracked, stumbling foundation that holds nothing? Do you see you need wholly a Savior? Well, that's what we should do. That's where we turn our eyes next. See Him, Christ alone, take on your grief. Take on sin's grief. If you're ever going to have hope, before God. We've got to turn our eyes away from ourselves because it's not found there, and we must look hard at Christ. And in the first, we find him here as we look at our Lord Jesus. We see him take on the grief, the grief that's tied and bound to all of our sins. See him alone take on sin's grief, and that for you. Verses 36 through 38. Verse 36 now. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So again, they arrive at Gethsemane. This is that particular olive orchard on the hill that was Jesus' favorite. He often withdrew there. This was something that seems like a sanctuary for him. He'd been there many times, probably also to do this very thing to pray. And he comes to pray. And we see here he's going to pray alone. He's withdrawing from his disciples. He says, you men sit here. I'm going to go in. I'm going to go deeper among the trees and plead with my heavenly father. And yet, as we say that, he doesn't go yet totally alone. Verse 37 begins. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Of course, that's James and John. Peter, James, and John make this core, the inner circle among the disciples. Jesus ministered widely to many. He focused particularly on the twelve, but even within the twelve, he had three that he bore his heart most to, that he most invested in, Peter, James, and John. They were the ones that got to go with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he peeled back his humanity and showed forth his glory, it was reserved for these three men. And now he takes them into the garden. If the Transfiguration was the, the brightest Literally, moment in Jesus' life, this might be the darkest. And he's calling his three closest companions with him into it. For as you see, as he calls them with him, as he steps aside to pray, the grief begins to overtake our Lord. Verse 37, again. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. These words express the strongest forms of grief. We're talking anguish. Torment of the soul. Being distressed in greatest anxiety. And you could see it on his face. That seems to be what's evident here. But then he even tells them as much. Look at verse 38 now. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. 
and to express himself, Jesus finds words from Scripture. This expression, very sorrowful, comes from the repeated refrain in Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He feels his soul being thrust and cast and thrown down. Why are you in turmoil within me? Very sorrowful, despairing of great distress, turmoil. And then he adds, even to death. It's a sorrow, a distress so great, so weighty, so suffocating. He feels as though it might smother him to death. The grief alone could kill him. What can he do but pray? And of course, is there not a lesson? And so then an invitation for us here. When we are in grief, when we are under great distress, when anxiety strikes, where do we turn? Do we turn first to prayer? Do we cast ourselves at the feet of our Lord? Or are we more prone to plan, plot, scheme? We, yes, we might get away. We might go for a walk. But it's not to depend upon him in prayer. It's to figure this thing out on our own. It's not to plead with God, but to work out our own machinations about what we can do. At the end, where do you turn? Jesus, in his greatest hour, turned to the Father. And he calls these choice disciples to join him in this spiritual war he's facing. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. He invites them in, watch with me, pray with me, battle with me. We are at war, man. I need support. I need the Father so desperately. Everything is so crucial in this hour. Pray with me. Think about what we saw about our Lord through his ministry and life so far. We've seen him tempted by Satan after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. We've seen crowds out to kill him. He walks coolly through them and away from them. We've seen demons all around him that no one could tame, and he controls them with the word. We've seen him asleep in a boat in the middle of the storm, joined by a bunch of experienced sailors who all think they're going to die, and Jesus, with all poise, just steps up and says, calm, be still. And the sea becomes calm like his heart. We've seen his trust. We've seen his confidence under so many terrors. What now could so possibly distress his soul? Why is Jesus acting like this? Why is he so desperate? What is causing this? Get this. The sinless, beloved Son of God is now taking your sins on himself. He's starting to feel the suffocating weight of standing before God as a sinner. He's taking your sins and mine in this moment upon himself, and far more than any other. He knows what this means. He knows what this means before the holiness of God, a holiness we have little understanding of. He knows the perfect fellowship with the Father, and he feels it all slipping away as our sins are now pressing upon him, and it's scaring him nearly to death. To put himself in our shoes. Not merely as a man, but more than this, as a sinner. I mean, we're used to it. It's like we want to step in and try and encourage Jesus for a moment. Jesus, Jesus, don't get so freaked out. I'm a sinner. I stand before God all the time with all of my sin. 
But I'm blind to a lot of realities, namely about God's holiness, his justice, and a lack of fellowship. Jesus understands all of those things perfectly. And he knows then the horror of losing them. He sees clearly and it terrorizes him. It brings him down on his face. He's trembling with our guilt before our Holy Father. Why does he feel so pained? Because he's now carrying your sins if you trust him. And that means all of the griefs and terrors associated with your sins follow him. So see him. See in his grief then what that means. He is really taking your sins. This isn't a game. This isn't just an appearance of things. He's shaken to his core because he really was taking your sin and all of the griefs that came with it. See him bear your sins and griefs alone. See him then next take the punishment with it alone. The punishment is what so struck him. It's what's terrorizing him. We see it here. It casts him down on his face here in verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. At times like these in Scripture, This posture, casting one down, one's face on the ground. It expresses the deepest terror, sorrow, and fear. Like we saw in chapter 17, when the disciples are confronted with the glory of Jesus, shining on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples there, they know this posture, they fell on their faces. Or when Israel saw the ground open up and swallow Korah and the rebels, what did all of Israel do? They saw it, they fell on their faces to the ground. And so now he is struck. He's fallen to the ground, pleading before his father. And what has so stricken him? But the prospect of taking this cup. And so he begs, he pleads. He turns to his father, begging, will there be some other way? My father, if it be possible, if there could be some other way, let's find an alternative. Let's do it some other way, but not this way, not like this. Specifically, again, what does he ask? Let this cup pass from me. Let it pass by me. I don't want to touch my lips to it. And of course, this is the cup of God's wrath. To be drunk and consumed by the objects of his justice. The recipients of his horrible wrath. Like Psalm 75 describes it like this. It is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the cup that he's now destined to drink. And that down to the very dregs, to consume every last drop that not one remains. There is nothing more horrible, more terrifying, more gut-wrenching, than to stand as a sinner before the holy and, note that, almighty God, ready to execute justice. And so he begs, oh, might there be another way? If there could be another way, if the Father would allow it, and yet we know he cannot. Because we need a substitute. We need a scapegoat. We need someone to 
die our death for us. We need someone to take our sins off of us and put it on Him and drink that justice of God down to every last drop. If we would ever have hope with God, peace with God, life with God, we need this salvation. Oh, Jesus, please drink from the cup. In the words of Romans 3, this is how Jesus becomes our propitiation. The very satisfaction of God's just wrath. Paul reasons like this, Romans 3.25. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That is, by dying, by spilling His blood, that is, drinking the cup in this figure, He becomes our propitiation. He satisfies the justice and wrath of God. He pays His life. He satisfies the justice. He absorbs the wrath for our sins. So that, Paul goes on in Romans 3, God might be two things, just because the cup was emptied, the justice was poured out, someone died, someone took hell. The judge was a good judge, he put out the punishment. But that he might also be, Paul continues, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that now, since justice has been poured out, he can look at sinners, he can look at the ungodly, and he can say, righteous. He can say, forgiven. He can say, you're mine. We have life. We're in fellowship. Why? Because those sins are gone. The punishment's all been paid. There's nothing left to do. I paid it all. And how do we know? Because he really took our sins. He really trembled before the Father. He really drank the cup, all of it, to the very last drop. There's not a drop that remains for any hiding in Christ. See him take on sin's punishment, all of it, and he did it alone. Also, number five, see him alone take on your weakness. Verses 40 and 41. So now our eyes do return to the disciples, discover, hey, what have these guys been up to? The Lord's agonizing in prayer for their souls. What are they doing? Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. What are they doing? Providing no help whatsoever. They're asleep at the job. Remember in verse 38, Jesus commands them to remain and keep watch with him. Pray with me. This is a desperate hour. And they failed. Jesus can't depend on them. He can't depend on them to help him through this. And so it warrants Jesus' rebuke to the once confident Peter, verse 40 now. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? You who, who had said you would even die with me. You can't keep watching prayer for an hour. The salvation of all God's people hangs in the balance, Peter. Your very soul is in the balance, and you can't watch and pray for an hour? You're asleep? Okay, let's try this again, guys. Verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. You've told me as much, but the flesh is weak. Let's try this again. There's too much at stake. You need to not enter into temptation. You're too weak to do that. You can't endure. Pray. You need help. And yet their apathy apparently stems from what they have not yet fully understood, how Indeed, spiritually weak they are. That's why he ends it the way he does. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit, to be clear here, that's the, just the inner man. 
And so we might have the best of intentions. Again, the disciples, I'll never abandon you, but the flesh is weak. We're far more evil than we think. You're far more faithless than you realize. You're weak. You can't handle this on your own. And yet, note this, again, as we look at our Savior, despite their failure here, being found asleep, despite their failures to come, they're going to run from Him, they're going to abandon Him, they're even going to deny Him three times. Jesus knows all this, and He doesn't tell them off. He's not done with them. He doesn't give up on them. He's not going to abandon them, though they abandon Him. Rather, if anything, what does he see as he finds his sleeping disciples? He sees all the more for his need of his ministry to drink that cup. Because without it, we don't stand any chance. They need my help. I must return to prayer. And that's what he does. So next, we'll see what else does our Savior do? We see him alone take on God's will. Verse 42. We find our Savior embrace and so submit himself to the Father's will verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's interesting to note, first of all, how Jesus just effectively prays the same thing. He repeats himself in prayer. We skipped this before. Look back to it in verse 39. When he first prays in the garden, he asks if it's possible that the cup pass from him. But he ends his request like this, the middle of verse 39. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, as a man in his humanity, he has desires, he has a will. And he trembles at the thought of taking on your sin. Could there be another way? We need an alternative. There's got to be some other way. But in the end, oh, Father, I submit to you. Not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes back in prayer and prays the same thing. And ends it the same way. Your will be done. He examples for us the very model prayer that he gave us, doesn't he? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He shows us, though, that you cannot genuinely pray that prayer, that you want to see God's will done on earth, unless you would first open your heart to whatever His will is. For you see, as you pray, as you ask God for things, you're asking God to give, you're asking God to work, you're asking God to move. We must be praying most of all that our hearts would be open to His plan and His will. One pastor put it like this, I think so helpfully. He said, For prayer is not seeking to manipulate God. It is opening up to God. It is welcoming the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And then he adds this, making a contrast. That's the difference between prayer and magic. Magic seeks to control cosmic powers. Prayer, rather, seeks to surrender to the will of God. And this is what our Lord, in His human will and humanity here, this is what He does. He fully submits and surrenders to the will of the Father, even when it means terrors for Him, even when it means hardships for Him, even when it literally is going to mean hell for Him, not my will, but yours be done. And it's interesting, Just we must make the side comment. He's going to pray three times, and He's going to end every time with that, Not my will, but your will be done. 
Notice, though, he prays. The beloved Son of God prays to his Father. Who does the Father love more than his Son? There is no one, and it's no comparison. And yet, as he prays, note this, Jesus' prayer goes unanswered. He doesn't get another way. He doesn't get what his fleshly will, in that sense, his human will wants. He gets what is best. He gets the will of his Father. And he wants that most of all. How can he do this? Because he trusts his Father. Even when it means the greatest of hardships imaginable, he trusts his Father still. Not my will, but yours be done. Brothers and sisters, we have prayers that seem to go unanswered, at least not answered the way we want them. Our Lord gives us an example, but our Father is still worthy of our trust, isn't he? Because he knew, he trusted, this will will work for the saving of the people of God. It will work to the eternal praise of God alone. It will even work to the Son's exaltation at the Father's right hand. But that means I must say, against what I seem to want, not my will, but your will be done, even when it's the Lord's will to crush him. Isaiah 53. Finally, See him alone take on your salvation. Verses 43 through 46. If we would ever have true rest or rescue, it must be in Christ alone. Namely, again, because what do we find with the disciples? Those who might come to his aid don't help him. They abandon him even in this needy hour. Verse 43, again, And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Their flesh was indeed weak. They couldn't stay awake. And they have again failed, even though he's commanded them again and given them a second chance. They still blew it. And so what does he do? He he just leaves them be. He sees, I'm alone. I must do this by myself. Verse 44. And so leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And so what do you find? The demonstration of his resolve. His resolve to keep praying, yes, but it's punctuated each time by a full submission and trust in the Father. Not my will, your will be done. And then we come to verse 45. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour's at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, these words are perplexing, and you would notice that if you compare your translation, maybe with what I've read or with other translations. And so cue the commentators to make sense of these comments from Jesus, namely when he says to sleep and take your rest. What's he talking about? Some think Jesus is asking a question. Are you still sleeping? But that's not natural with the grammar here and the very actual meaning of one of the words in particular. Others see it as a sarcastic, perhaps frustrated statement. Sure, go ahead, keep sleeping. But more naturally, at least from the Greek side anyways, these should be taken as commands. And he sees them and he tells them, sleep on. Take your rest finally. And that's precisely how the old King James actually renders this expression. He bids them finally to take their rest, even now. That's best we can do. 
And that's the sense, even more so than how the ESV has rendered it, as if he's offering rest later. No, he's saying from this point forward, you can rest. But what does he mean by that? Because as he tells them and commands them to rest, he immediately tells them, hey, get up, get going. My betrayer's at hand. What is he talking about? What does he mean when he commands them to rest? But that he's prepared, even if they are not. That he's ready for action, even though they never will be. Even though they didn't help him, even though they didn't come to his aid, even though they provided him no support, they failed him, even though they were asleep, even though he's been left alone, he's awake for them. He's determined to take the cup for them. He stands alone, so now they can rest. He sees, I will have to do this alone for you. He doesn't need their help. And in our weakness and in our fallenness, we have proven more than unable to help, we are a liability at this work. We need someone to wholly save us. And so here we have Jesus, our King. He stands alone, ready to save and redeem, ready, determined to do the Father's will, to take that cup, even joyfully to accomplish His Father's will to the glory of God. He will do the word and will of God alone. He will save alone. He will do it all, but he must do it alone. That's a savior you can rely upon. That's a salvation you can rest in. Now, because it's striking. The other times in Matthew's gospel where this word rest occurs, it's only here. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. It's a command. Come to me. All you labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. He provides it. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because he does the work. We can rest because he does it by taking our sins. So what do we do with this? I think 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, provides a good paradigm how to think through this vision, this picture of Jesus we've seen. When John writes, he says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. He's writing these things that we wouldn't sin. We find here in the garden the terror of sin, don't we? We find how horrible sin is, especially before a holy God. So horrible that it makes our strong, trusting Savior shaken, and that should shake us. If we could see things aright as Jesus does, we should be stricken by our own corruptions instead of being lulled into the assumption that, well, because sin's so prevalent, everybody's got it and it must be okay. No, Jesus in the garden proves it is not okay. It is the most dangerous place in creation to be, a sinner before the holy God. We should fight sin with all that we are. And yet, John continues, But if anyone does sin, because see, yes, our spirit may be willing, but our flesh is still very weak. If anyone does sin, and we will, we need to know this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We still fail. We still sin. What then do we do? We return to our advocate in heaven who did all the work for us. This means finding assurance before God, not in how well you're doing the Christian life, but in how well Christ performed on your behalf. It means finding our hope, not in our righteousness or how good we can be, but in Christ's. It means finding assurance, not in our prayer lives, but in that Christ prays for you now. 
It means finding peace, not through your suffering and your penance and trying to make it up for God, but it means finding peace with God again in his work, all of it. Brothers and sisters, we must preach that to ourselves all the time, but especially when conviction is great, we see our sin and life hurts and there's a lot of grief. For the only answer, the only refuge that will not disappoint, it's not found in more of you. But look and find rest for your souls in Jesus Christ. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray together. Indeed, we cry again, O God, and we thank you for the gift of your Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior that you've given to us. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, your love is sure. For you, our Christ, have paid for every failing such that we can say we are yours forevermore. May we walk in that assurance, walk in that joy, put sin to death, testify to mercy where it's found, and that's at your feet. That we are redeemed because Christ is the greatest and only Redeemer. In whose name alone we pray. Amen.